Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, a place that takes both truth and reconciliation quite seriously, here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 43 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, we're recording this in late November... So I would be remiss if I did not ask, how was your Thanksgiving? Wonderful as always. It's a, it's a favorite holiday of mine. Although I got to keep on theme here because as a scholar of indigenous America, it's always important to point out the complicated history of the holiday. And that's something I wrestle with, uh, you know, both in my teaching and in my own celebration. But, um, you know, I am very thankful for my family. And so I was grateful for the opportunity to spend some time up in Connecticut with my Durley side. Plus, let's be honest, I like to eat. <laughs> and the standard Thanksgiving fare is some of my favorite. And my mother-in-law, well, she is a fabulous cook. You heard that, right? <laughs> got the plug. <laughs> so how about you, John? Pretty relaxed. Went to see my sister in the Philadelphia area. Um, my All my family was home. My daughter was home from college in Michigan. Uh, her boyfriend came. Um, who, wait, Let's put a pin in that. I feel like that needs a little bit of follow-up there. Well, he's a listener of the podcast, so I don't want to embarrass him. But okay. uh, but Derek's a great guy, and he spent the weekend with us. But yeah, so so pretty relaxed. My daughter's volleyball season just ended. They lost in the, in the national championship game, so we kind of grieved or lamented whatever the word is over that but it was it was fun it was good having everybody under one roof and uh the nice thing about thanksgiving with family when your kids go off and go do different things is um when they leave after thanksgiving you always can say well see you in a couple weeks or see you in three weeks you know when they come back home for uh for the holidays so we're looking forward to that as well i didn't mean to tease your your daughter's boyfriend i just also remember when i first went to a Connecticut oh, yeah. holiday when I was when I was just a boyfriend. Yeah, well, Derek Derek's getting you know he's he this is his third or fourth trip. Oh, okay. uh, to the to the house, so oh, he's getting good, uh, good. He he's getting to you know be savvy, puts up with me and all my stupid jokes and you know well, dad jokes and prerogatives and yeah. So anyway, so what do we have on tap for today? Well, today we're going to talk about how churches are trying to come to grips with their own histories of racism, white supremacy and slavery. That's a, a really big topic. Yeah, it's, I mean, that sounds pretty interesting. Is it an ecclesiastical version of the debate over Confederate monuments? Yeah, I think so. And and um, we're going to be talking with a guy, Chris Graham. Uh, he's a public historian. He's a scholar of race and religion. Uh, he also attends St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond. Now, as many of you know, Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And St. Paul's is right in the heart of Richmond. It's often been described as the Cathedral of the Confederacy. But I don't want to give too much away. I want Graham to, to talk about that when he gets on the air with us. I mean, this seems like it could be a fruitful new horizon in the field of public history. I, I would actually be remiss if I didn't put in a little bit of a plug for Digital Harrisburg Initiative, of which I'm the project manager. I mean, we're talking about some of this history. It's obviously not a specific church, but we're talking about redlining and we're talking about demographic social changes that affected predominantly minority uh, populations in Harrisburg. And the truth is there are so many churches with deep links to segregation, white supremacy, Jim Crow, and even slavery. 
Uh, it would seem that historians might be able to help such congregations bringing together the study of the past and racial reconciliation. Yeah, that's right. I think Graham and the others at St. Paul's Episcopal are really leading the way on this front. As I say in the interview with with Chris, I, I visited St. Paul's this past summer. I gave a talk on Believe Me, uh, my book on Trump, and, and was very impressed at the way they're coming to grips with this past. I hope the efforts of Graham and his team are going to get the kind of attention it deserves. Uh, the city of Richmond and the local media have already taken notice of what St. Paul's is doing in this area. But I think the word needs to be put out there to even an audience that's more national, even outside of the city. Say on a nationally distributed podcast, internationally distributed podcast. There you go. Right. That's that's perfect. That's what we're trying to do here. I'm also hoping Graham might produce a book on both the congregation's past and its present. I, I think St. Paul's would make a wonderful study of history and memory uh, at the intersection of religion and Southern history, maybe even Episcopalian history. By the way, Drew, speaking of Episcopalians and race, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but uh, you have a little story about Episcopalians and racial reconciliation from your own uh, experience as a as an Episcopalian, right? I do. I've actually I've been very blessed. Uh, back in 2006, I was uh, working for the uh, Episcopal Cathedral here in our diocese, Central Pennsylvania, which is in Harrisburg, St. Stephen's, and that meant we were responsible for installing a new bishop. Uh, that bishop was Nathan Baxter, who kind of came to national renown. He actually conducted the service memorializing the attacks at 9-11 in 2001, because he, at that time he was serving as the dean of the National Cathedral down in D.C., but the guest was Archbishop Desmond Tutu, mm. who, of course, was the spiritual author of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. I was lucky enough to actually serve as the chaplain for Archbishop Tutu. Wait a minute. Where did you get off being Archbishop Tutu's chaplain? This I got to learn more about. It, within this context, that's kind of Episcopalian speak for, uh, I was in charge of making sure he didn't get lost. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the chaplain is is someone who kind of is the, the glorified usher for a visiting bishop because so often the, uh, the you know, the visitors aren't, are probably not accustomed to the, to the property or, or things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I also actually, one of my big responsibilities was obviously after this service, uh, a lot of congregants would like to get a quick word with someone so famous and I kind of guarded the door and made like sure that no one got through. I was, yeah, I was, I was the bouncer. Did you have to drive him around anywhere? No, no. Oh, he, so he, this he, wasn't an issue where you had to take your car, clean no, the car. No, no, or... no. <laughs> Obviously, and, and maybe I'll share a picture of, of me and, and, and Archbishop Tutu. You can put it on the blog. I'm much younger, much skinnier. Yeah. Did you have the ponytail? No, this was after the ponytail. Okay. Chris Graham will be with us shortly, but first... Drew, tell us how to connect the podcast and our work here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. I also need to give a special thank you to Kate Logan, who has actually just upped her contribution. And out of appreciation for all the work she's done, she gets a bonus mug. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org, that's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org, to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. And if you want to become a sponsor of our show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And as always, the best way to spread the word is on social media. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook and give us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. We keep reminding you, if you're a Spotify user or you know someone who is, and that's a great way to share the podcast, we're now available on Spotify. So before Chris joins us, you have some commentary, John. First Baptist Church in Dallas has been in the news lately. 
Its controversial pastor, Robert Jeffress, one of the pro-Trump religious leaders who make up the group I have called the court evangelicals, has been an outspoken proponent of Donald Trump and his policies. As many of you know, I wrote a book of the evangelical support for Trump, and Jeffress features prominently in the pages of that book. I hope you will buy a copy of Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Read it. Tell your friends about it. But I'm not going to revisit its content here. No, today I'm actually interested in First Baptist Church Dallas for another reason. Recently, the congregation observed its 150th anniversary. The church produced a celebratory video and hosted special services to commemorate its past. Jeffress tweeted, quote, A powerful thread runs through the history of First Baptist Dallas, the thread of reaching the lost in our city, nation, and world with the truth of God's word, no matter the circumstances, unquote. I have no doubt that many lives have been touched with the gospel over the years at First Baptist Church Dallas, and I rejoice with those whose lives were changed because of the church's ministry. I have actually met people who receive spiritual nurture in this historic congregation, and today are doing good work in the world. But I'm a historian. That is my calling. It's what I do. So let's not pretend that there are also other powerful threads running through the history of First Baptist Dallas. If you head over to YouTube or the church website and watch the 150th anniversary video, you will see a narrative unfold that is centered around three authoritarian clergymen, George Truitt, W.A. Criswell, and Robert Jeffress, the current pastor. The narrative says nothing about the fact that the Southern Baptist Church was formed because Baptists in the South defended slavery and white supremacy. George Truitt pastored First Baptist from 1897 to 1944. He is celebrated in the video as a great soul winner, but there is nothing mentioned about his deep commitment to racial segregation and Jim Crow. The same might be said of Truett's successor, Chriswell, who led the congregation from the 1940s to the 1980s. Historians Curtis Freeman and Joseph Davis note that during Chriswell's pastorate, the church tripled in size to 22,000 members. Even Billy Graham held membership in the congregation. In 1968, Chriswell was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. In that year, the convention voted to integrate its churches and welcome all races to membership. But it still elected Chriswell, a segregationalist, as its president. In 1968, when Criswell was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his views on segregation were well known. He opposed the integration of the races in public and civil life. He believed that churches concerned about civil rights for blacks were outside agitators who were trying to destroy the Southern way of life. He argued, based on the principle of religious liberty, that churches had the right to segregate without government interference. Like many of the Confederate theologians before him, Criswell believed segregation was good for both blacks and whites. Keeping blacks out of white churches would go a long way toward keeping the white race pure and help blacks excel among their own kind. As we get to the end of the First Baptist anniversary video, we see a picture of current pastor Robert Jeffress on stage with Trump. It is worth noting that the video was probably produced right around the time that Jeffress defended Trump's comments equating white supremacists and those protesting white supremacy during the August 2017 race riots in Charlottesville, Virginia. Rather than taking a hard look at its past, First Baptist Dallas has whitewashed it. Instead of awakening the dead and piecing together what is broken— As the great theologian of hope, Jürgen Moltmann, once said, First Baptist Dallas has chosen to ignore the darker dimensions of its past. Southern Baptists and white American evangelicals more broadly may immediately conclude that they have little in common theologically with a progressive mainline Protestant church like St. Paul's in Richmond, the congregation that historian Chris Graham will discuss in a few minutes. As a result, 
they might find it easy to dismiss the congregation's history-related efforts as just another social justice project propagated by theological liberals. But this would be a shame. Conservative evangelicals can learn a lot from St. Paul's about how to take a deep and honest look into the mirror of the past and come to grips with the sin deeply embedded in the life of their churches. Christopher Graham received his Ph.D. in 2013 from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. He has taught public history at UNC Greensboro and Elon College and spent eight years as a curator at the North Carolina Museum of History. His scholarly articles and reviews have appeared in Commonplace, the Journal of Southern Religion, the Journal of Southern History, the Public Historian, and Civil War History. He is currently a guest curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and chairs the History and Reconciliation Initiative at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond. We are here today with public historian Chris Graham to talk about the racial reconciliation work being done at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. Chris, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great. Let's dive right in here. You attend St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, often known as the Cathedral of the Confederacy, right? And you are involved in uh, something there, which we'll get to in a second, called the History and Reconciliation Initiative Task Force. Before we get to the History and Reconciliation Initiative Task Force, which I will from this point forward be calling HRI, tell us a little bit about for lack of a better term, the kind of received history that someone attending St. Paul's in Richmond would have uh, encountered. So so let's just say the HRI started in 2015. Let's just say someone visits the church for the first time in, say, 2014 uh, and wants to know about the history of this congregation in downtown Richmond. Uh, what would that? What would what would someone at the church tell them about this uh, this history, this received history? So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, St. Paul's is an Episcopal church in downtown Richmond, Virginia, and it was founded in 1844, and so it's coming up on its 175th anniversary. And this church has spent a great deal of its uh, life closely identified with the Confederate experience. So four years of existence. Um, out of its 175 years history. So the church is located on uh, Grace and 8th Street in downtown Richmond. And if uh, if you're familiar with the geography, we're right across from the old state capitol building. Right, right. And in fact, from the front porch of the church, you can see the well-known George Washington statue on the state capitol grounds. But the church has uh, linked its historic identity to the Confederate experience, and, uh, particularly in the fact that Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis both attended services there during the Civil War. Davis more than Lee. Davis was a uh, regular member of the church, was uh, confirmed, was baptized and confirmed in the church. And though neither of them came back to St. Paul's after April 1865, um, the church cherished the memory of them having been there. And in the 1890s, installed memorial windows to Lee and Davis and continued to nurture that Confederate history through regular birthday observances for the two and other ceremonial venerations of the two men and their attachment to that Confederate history. That's um, a history that kind of went dormant in the beginning in the early 1970s, but was still part of kind of the public face of the church. And is certainly what the church is known for. As you mentioned, it's been commonly referred to as the Cathedral of Confederacy. More often, the church where Lee and Davis worshipped um, is is a phrase that appears often in uh, tour guide manuals, on postcards, and yeah. other publications published by the church and about the church over the course of the 20th century. So we have this Cathedral of the Confederacy. It's in the heart of, you know, lo- I've, I visited the church. I was there this summer to give a talk. And by the way, thanks for inviting me, Chris. It was great. Um, <laughs> you were a big hit. I got to park my car, too, in their parking garage. For, they let me park it for a week while I went down to the Outer Banks with my family and then came back and picked it up. So that was that was incredible. 
So it's located in downtown Richmond, right in the heart of this sort of old Confederacy, if you will. Lee Davis worship there. There's there's stained glass windows devoted to this. There's material culture in the form of postcards and pictures and all these kinds of things. Was the history largely, you said, went dormant in the 70s, but largely kind of untouched since the Civil War. And then along comes a group called the History and Reconciliation yeah. Initiative Task Force. That's in 2015. You are the co-chair of that task force. Tell us about what changes after the task force is organized and, and what the task force is all about. Okay, so HRI is the History and Reconciliation Initiative. And if 2015 uh, rings any bells, of course, it's the year of the tragic murders in Charleston, South Carolina, committed by a young man who associated himself with Confederate iconography. And like many institutions throughout the country, uh, St. Paul's was uh, shook by that event and took the opportunity to began a critical rethinking of its own associations with Confederate history. And this was, of course, helped along by the Episcopal Church General Convention that passed resolutions reaffirming that all of its churches that had Confederate iconography kind of remove them and think about what that had meant in their own past. And so the church first hosted a series of prayerful conversations amongst the congregation about how to proceed in its reexamination. And we brought in an outside facilitator to uh, manage those conversations. And what emerged out of the prayerful conversations was the History and Reconciliation Initiative, which has as its mission statement, uh, and I quote, in light of our Christian faith, we will trace and acknowledge the racial history of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in order to repair, restore, and seek reconciliation with God, each other, and the broader community. And so the History and Reconciliation Initiative was established, and that includes a steering committee and three at the time, now two subcommittees, a history research group, a memorials group, and a liturgy group um, of volunteers from the congregation who were all devoted to researching the history, uh, making recommendations about the future of uh, the memorials that are in the church and recommendations for how we can uh, adopt a liturgy that acknowledges the history and works toward uh, racial healing in the church and in Richmond. So what has the HRI accomplished so far? and What kind of ways are you changing the narrative and the history of the church? Did the church have any history of slavery that you're sort of dealing with? What conclusions have you drawn and what decisions have been made? So I actually came to the process a a bit later um, after it got underway. The HRI committees were formed and I joined the history research group and began working with a number of other volunteer researchers to explore the church's history in greater detail. And so we covered from 1844 till about the present time, uh, but we did look more deeply into church members' relationship to slavery, their engagement with slavery. So our volunteer researchers began going through uh, church manuscript records, private manuscript collections, U.S. Census records, newspapers, and other publications from 1844 to the present time. And we contextualize it all in a lot of great uh, secondary academic history material. And uh, what we discovered pretty quickly was that this is a greater story than just about the enslaved people who built the structure of the church or enriched its members. But it's a story about how the people in this church built the landscape of race in Richmond, Virginia from 1844 until the present time. And we discovered that the more we dug into this, the status of the memorial windows and the plaques receded as we began to see that there's a greater story of race in Richmond throughout its history and the way this church is critically entwined with that. So we started by examining the slaveholding practices of the members of St. Paul's. And so this is an urban church. And so there's small slaveholders because these members were chiefly lawyers and merchants and 
bankers and politicians. And so there, there's small slaveholding amongst members of this church, although there are some industrialists that had vast numbers of slaves in uh, tobacco factories and iron factories. And Altogether, uh, St. Paul's members were fully enmeshed in, in the fabric of urban slavery, particularly in the use of enslaved women as domestic workers and the hiring in and hiring out of enslaved people in and around town, in and outside of town. Um, we were not really able to make any direct connections between St. Paul's members and direct participation the Richmond uh, domestic slave trade, which mm. was enormous in the antebellum yeah. period, uh, but it's it's all part of the same piece of sure. slavery. This gave us a chance to think more broadly about slavery in Richmond, and we you know we see that there's uh, relatively autonomous congregations of free and enslaved African Americans in Richmond, particularly at First African Baptist Church and Ebenezer Baptist, and we discovered that St. Paul's members claimed ownership of numerous congregants at those churches. But more importantly, um, St. Paul's members, like the majority of white Protestants in the South, uh, subscribed to the tenets of pro-slavery Christianity. And pro-slavery theologians, of course, used the Bible to justify chattel racial slavery. And they described the racial order that demanded a mutual obligation between white people and black people. And in that order, the way they understood it, the way the white people understood it, uh, white people would provide benevolent guidance for black people's spiritual development, and black people would submit to that guidance, and that God ordained this relationship. And so that means that white Christians, including those at St. Paul's, did what seems like paradoxical things. They supported Sunday schools for African Americans. They published sermons for them, and they attempted to entice or invite or persuade free and enslaved black people to attend their white churches. Um, but African-Americans Richmond did not do that. Um, and so those Episcopalians, at least, agreed in 1860 to establish a, a separate church for black people. And that became St. Philip's Church, which is still a uh, predominantly African-American Episcopal church here in Richmond today. The thing about pro-slavery Christianity, and I want to be clear about this, is that it's an idealistic intention. And I'm taking St. Paul's members seriously when they express the desire to be responsible stewards of black Christianity. But we are under no illusion that any of this was good in any way or that it in any way alleviated the pain and the damage that slavery inflicted on the physical and religious lives of the black people that it touched. In fact, the, the core tenets of pro-slavery Christianity that white people had this paternalistic obligation to help, and you can see my vigorous air quotes right here, help underdeveloped yeah. uh, black people, survived slavery, survived emancipation, and it continued to guide white Christians, uh, particularly mainline and socially oriented variety of white Christians in the South, uh, well into the 20th century, is kind of a paternalistic care and regard for African-American populations around them. And it, that's a founding tenet of Jim Crow segregation because it and it created what uh, Brian Stevenson has called, uh, quote, the narrative of racial difference. Yeah. Um, and we see that narrative uh, supported by the lost cause theology that St. Paul's embraced. And at the same time, that narrative justified uh, Virginia's 1902 disfranchisement and marginalization of black citizens um, in the 1902 Constitution that many St. Paul's members had a hand in shaping. The story gets interesting and a little more complicated from there. From? From 1902. Yeah. In 1912, uh, St. Paul's called Walter Russell Bowie to be the rector of the church. And uh, Walter Russell Bowie had uh, grown up in St. Paul's, and his aunt was uh, Mary Mumford, who was uh, a well-known historical figure here in Richmond as a uh, progressive activist in the early 20th century. But Russell Bowie had attended Union Theological Seminary in New York City for a year and became steeped in the uh, social gospel theology. Right. And he spent his year in New York um, working amongst the Lower East Side tenements and in settlement houses and kind of imbibing in the most current uh, social gospel theology of the day. And when he came back to Richmond to uh, become the rector, he mobilized St. Paul's to be what he called a powerhouse of social activism in urban industrial Richmond. And so 
His successor, Beverly Tucker, continued that tradition throughout the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s. And so the church uh, spends a lot of time advocating for social causes in Richmond's public life, like public health, public education. They sponsored soup kitchens, uh, raised money for hospitals. And as part of that, they advocated for equitable city services for African-American neighborhoods in Richmond. And we do understand that this is all in the context of the Jim Crow political regime. And so kind of within the narrow confines of never really confronting segregation as an institution in the 1910s and 1920s, St. Paul's members tended to be on the little more progressive, a little more kind of pragmatic compromisers and willing to uh, work with and advocate for African-Americans um, during this period. And this extends to a lot of activities like uh, Bowie and uh, Reverend uh, Tucker both denounced the Klan from the pulpit in sermons at St. Paul's. And uh, lay people in the church regularly went to City Hall to advocate against residential and business segregation in Richmond. And many of them participated in the Commission on Interracial Cooperation in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, which is a forerunner of the Southern Regional Council. This is a biracial group that um, sat down together in fellowship to discuss issues about racial equality and inequality in Southern cities at this point. And, and certainly uh, St. Paul's members never challenged segregation, but they were doing what we would think is taking rather unexpected steps in forging relationships with um, African-American church and community leaders uh, during this period. And what's interesting to me is that is that they're beginning to draw on a theology that's no longer pro-slavery and it's no longer lost cause and it no longer sees sees a division of the races as God's will. But because the social gospel, I think, and we see this in uh, the way Walter Russell Bowie uh, speaks, is that racial inequalities is not God's plan, but it is a human problem that they're not going to challenge it, but they're going to try to alleviate it. Yeah. So to what extent, Chris, is the Bowie era at St. Paul's a kind of then usable past for you as you're doing your work in the present? I mean, do you tap into that or is it just still, since it's so within the bounds of segregation still, uh, it's not really useful for, for helping you to interpret the present? Yeah, certainly. Um, I tend not to attribute the values of absolute good or absolute evil to these historical actors in the past. And so we can look to these Mary Mumford and Russell Bowie and Beverly Tucker and Richard Carrington and their, and their friends at St. Paul's as an unexpected story that yeah. um, in the received history of St. Paul's, no one ever really remembered or talked about or knew. We, we certainly can't hold them up as you know perfect exemplars of racial equality in their day and certainly not in our own. The fact that their stories exist and the fact that they do offer kind of a glimmer of hope and a glimmer of unexpectedness yeah. um, is, is very useful. Yeah, that's, that's very – that's really well put. Um, right. So you, you've done this research – and, you know, you're, you're finding out all about this kind of racial landscape as you describe it. You're finding all about the kind of racist, white supremacy, Jim Crow, you know, the whole, the whole thing, history of the church. Right. And then you have to kind of, right, you're tasked with communicating this to the congregation. So how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, what are, let me ask you this. What are the sure. forums in which you in which you do that. Very practical question. You know, what are the forums in which you uh, communicate this? Sure. Um, on a very granular level, I talk about this all the time and as much as possible to yeah. anyone who will listen. I have gone to several groups and subcommittees, the uh, women of a certain age group, both the nighttime and the daytime uh, groups <laughs> of that organization and talked with them, the St. Paul's youngish adults, I've had conversations with them about it, and other members of the research group have talked in individual ways with other people. But we have, um, in, a, in, a, in a more programmatic way, yeah. we have regular prayerful conversations about this history. And so my colleagues on the research group and I, I'm not the only one doing the research and I'm not the only one presenting it. It's, this is a team effort. Right. Uh, but we have, at least on uh, two occasions, 
did formal presentations of this history that I've, I've kind of skimmed past just now for the congregation. And one of those was earlier this year in which uh, in which the presiding bishop, uh, Michael Curry, yeah. and his staff from the Episcopal Church came. And we had an evening conversation. It was uh, well attended by church members and the uh, Richmond community in general. And uh, certainly having uh, Bishop Curry present was a, a great inspiration, and he uh, cheered us along in this work. This, um, is, this, by the way, Chris, is Bishop Curry of the Royal Wedding fame. Exactly. Curry. And, um, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, in fact, many of the themes of his sermon that he gave at that wedding, he previewed at when he visited our church in March. That was, of course, exciting to see. Yeah, uh, really. He, he's a... Uh, he's, uh, charismatic and inspiring individual. But we've also kind of spun this out a little bit into uh, numerous events in which we talk about history in general, but we have uh, small group conversations about the legacy of race and racism in Richmond and beyond. Um, In our own lives, we continue to plan facilitated and prayerful conversations in the future to continue talking about these issues uh, amongst ourselves and with speakers and activists and other people outside of the congregation. Um, We've done some book readings. We just had a uh, discussion of uh, The Color of the Law, the book on redlining. Certainly, uh, St. Paul's people had a hand in redlining in Richmond in the 1930s and 1940s. And so kind of uh, reading that book and thinking about the place that our members had in uh, kind of creating that system was uh, sobering. Um, so, so, uh, one more quick question. I got to ask this. I was, when I was doing the research for, um, this episode, I came across an article where it looked like it was a picture of you hosting an event. And I, I didn't recognize the one person there, but I saw the famous university of Virginia and now university of Richmond historian, Ed Ayers. What was that? Just come some kind of public event or. I don't know how this actually came about. Um, so Ed Ayers has been uh, tangentially involved in this operation from the beginning. Does he um, go to the church? No, he doesn't. Oh, okay. But he is uh, he is ubiquitous on Richmond's uh, historical discussion landscape. Yeah. And so whenever someone needs to uh, kind of bring some historical expertise, they tend to call him, and and he's game. Yeah, I've heard that about him. Maybe maybe they could yeah. do. A, I'm I'm glad we beat backstory. Yeah. Right. We, we <laughs> we're ahead of the curve. Right. Backstory hasn't covered this yet. Go ahead, Drew, you had a question. So, Chris, you've been touching on a number of good takeaways from your work thus far. And so I guess I'm interested in in what kind of resistance you might have uh, uh, experienced as you have presented this information in these in these forums, you know, either inside or outside of the congregation. I'm sure these forums are well attended by the Richmond populace writ large. And then conversely, what sort of successes have you had Any kind of like aha moments or breakthroughs? One of the interesting things about this is that kind of beginning in the late 1960s and early 1970s, this church really took a turn. And this has a lot to do with the arrival of John Shelby Spong, uh, uh, also known yeah. as Jack Spong, uh, Bishop of the Episcopal Church, as the rector of St. Paul's in 1969. And he came at a time when the larger church was confronting the issues of integration and racial inequality. And he firmly mobilized St. Paul's uh, to support the uh, Episcopal Church's general convention special projects, which is a large block grant program that was intended to alleviate some of the legacies of poverty and racism in America's urban areas. And this is a controversial move in the Southern Episcopal Churches particularly. And Reverend Spong uh, mobilized St. Paul's to support it and began local programs to kind of replicate that block grant. And um, in fact, uh, St. Paul's is a wealthy church um, and a great deal of its revenue um, in the second half of the 20th century comes from that parking garage. Um, <laughs> it's used a public parking garage. And so I've been using that parking garage revenue to fund all kinds of uh, programs from homelessness to poverty to public health services, um, housing issues. They didn't necessarily use the language of racial equity, but they were addressing the legacy of racial inequality. And that brought in a lot of new people to St. Paul's. And the the point of saying all this is that we have these memorial windows and we have this Confederate legacy in the church. 
But by the time I arrived in uh, 2016, um, we've had a whole generation for which that was never the main point of being involved in St. Paul's. And that it seemed kind of odd that we would suddenly turn around from being a majority white you know, mainline church, uh, would suddenly go back and resurrect this history, it seemed kind of out of step with the work on addressing uh, racial issues in Richmond today. I wouldn't say there's been a lot of opposition, but a lot of the questions is that why are we doing this? And there was a bit of fear behind all that. The idea that um, what we were doing here was exposing St. Paul's history, shaming St. Yeah. Paul's people, and otherwise, you know, kind of airing dirty laundry, so to speak. And that has been a little bit of the conversation, but I think that gets overcome fairly easy uh, when when observers both inside and outside the church see that uh, we're being very deliberate about this. There's a great deal of urgency to the work of racial equity and reconciliation today, but we're going through this deliberately and slowly, and we're not talking about shaming people. We're not talking about um, bringing a scorn upon ourselves. You know, we've discovered that um, this isn't just a matter of denouncing or erasing history, but we have learned so much more uh, than we ever knew. And it's such a full, complicated, frustrating, and inspiring story that as we unroll this and tell it to the congregation, the community, people tend to trust the way that we're doing this work. Um, at least inside the church. Yeah, that's really well put. Um, our time's just about up, Chris, but I just want to ask you one final final question and get a sort of brief answer. So there's a church that someone's listening to this and is part of a church with a kind of uh, dark racial past, if you will. Mm. Give us a couple of tips, you know, how to get started with a project like this. You know, what what can churches do who are interested in coming face-to-face and encountering this this history, uh, what can they do to sort of perhaps get a similar project going? And I realize a lot of these churches may not have the wealth of St. Paul's, you know, so, so give us one or two quick tips, you know, to get started. The first thing we do, I think, that makes this successful so far is that we pray a lot and we listen to each other a lot. St. Paul's is actually a bit more of a a diverse church than, than this conversation might suggest. And so uh, we tend to have very frank and hard cross-racial conversations amongst ourselves that really grounds this, this entire work is, is not a reputation of history, but what matters is the relationships we have with each other today. And that's a strong bond that I think is uh, necessary and successful for this kind of work. Um, certainly uh, reach out to historians that, that might could provide some of the uh, secondary literature and the contextual um, understanding of uh, history and changes in history and theology and American church life over uh, the centuries. And certainly provide people who can also provide some of the nuts and bolts research skills on how to use the U.S. Census, how to uh, search newspapers.com databases. Um, how to go down to the local archives and look up private and church manuscript records. That's all very useful. One thing I think that really works well is that we don't frame this as erasing history. We're learning more about our history and we're accepting all of its ugliness, all of its unexpected joys um, altogether. And I think that this leaves us, if maybe not feeling great about the history that we've discovered, um, at least satisfied that we're being honest about it. And this is a starting point. This is more this is more than just about the disposition of plaques and windows. This is about thinking about who we are, who we have been, and what that means for our place in our communities today. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, what better place for this conversation to happen? than in a church. So we have been talking to Dr. Christopher Graham. Uh, he is the co-chair of the History and Reconciliation Initiative Task Force at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. This has been a great conversation, Chris. Thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you. Drew, I love what Chris Graham and 
America's committee are doing in Richmond. And as we talked a little bit about in the opening, churches are just a wonderful place to practice public history in this way, because churches should be committed to this kind of racial reconciliation. And it's, it's really, really hard to do the work of racial reconciliation without understanding both the white and black past of the communities and the churches that want to pursue such a such an agenda of reconciliation. I have to be honest, John, uh, talking to Chris, you know, bolstered me not just as a historian, but also spiritually. As I, We've been mentioning a lot, and we talked about at the top of the episode, I'm, I'm an Episcopalian. I have been my whole life. I've also been white my whole life. In a certain sense, uh, this is part of my past. You know, my great-grandmother, who was also an Episcopalian. Well, her her maiden name was Davis, and that's not a coincidence that, uh, you know, we are descendant from Jefferson Davis. Yeah. And this is, you know, a lot of the things that he was pulling apart in the history of, of St. Paul's as a congregation is also part of my family legacy. And, and you know, the the wrestling with being a descendant of Daughters of the Confederacy, the, the yeah. same people who are putting up all those monuments that uh, we're now working on on removing or contextualizing or doing something with other than just yeah. leaving them a, as they stand. So I have a lot of mixed up feelings here because yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated academically because I think this is important work. But that truth and reconciliation has a very important spiritual role to play in my own yeah. life as someone who is a very narrowly a practitioner of the faith uh, of St. Paul's. It kind of reminds me of, um, I wrote a little bit about this, I think it's in chapter four or chapter five of my book, Why Study History, on the way in which the study of the past and an encounter with the past and all its fullness and all its complexity can teach us to grow spiritually, teaches us to see our own sin Therefore, but the grace of God go I. It teaches us to learn how to love our neighbor, even if our neighbor's dead, right? What would it mean to love the dead, as we historians think about? In some ways, that is a deeply, deeply spiritual exercise. And again, I can't help but think, what better place for this kind of work of history to take place than in uh, local congregations? And, And, you know, what really disappoints me about my own white evangelical community is, which I, I talked about this in the commentary, is um, most white evangelical congregations, first of all, megachurches don't have much of a past to explore, but that doesn't mean they don't have certain assumptions, right, about race and, and whiteness. Or, but, but there's a lot of kind of older evangelical congregations that aren't even close to where St. Paul's is. And God forbid that a conservative evangelical congregation might learn something from uh, a mainline congregation. But but in this sense, they're going to have to, I think. I mean, that's pretty close to some of the work you're doing with your release of of Believe Me, right? Yeah. You, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of doing a similar diagnosis of, of this history of fear right. uh, that is at the heart of evangelicalism right. and why that has led to where it is now. And, and either that is just the way it is, and we go forward and just accept that, or we do what truth and reconciliation as a kind of specific model is designed to right, do, which right. is is to dig without hiding anything, right. pull out everything, and then take the steps necessary. Yeah, you know, I mean, you yeah. say you know th- this is a process that is being used in in or was used in in Argentina or Chile as they're getting over there right. their legacy of, of dictatorships, or in in South Africa and the legacy of of apartheid or or in Canada and the legacy of, of its treatment of First Nations people. So what's fascinating know. about so many conservative evangelical churches, too, is just the theological reflection here, right? I mean, many of these churches have a very, very robust view of human sin. So like when they look yeah. into their past, like they should be able, you know, why are they afraid of this? It's, it's embedded within their theology. You know, it's so ironic, right, yeah. that they don't want to address these questions. They should expect this kind of stuff uh, to have happened in their past, right? It's, it's a really fascinating project. Like I said, I spent a day with them this summer. Uh, it is an amazing church. I mean, talk about like old wealth. I mean, mm-hmm. 
St. Paul's Richmond. It's right there. Like they have this huge parking garage, which Chris was talking mm-hmm. about. It's it's right in the heart of the city. And, you know, the room I spoke in, mine as well been, it's like one of these rooms where like, you know, the board of trustees of a college meets, you know, it's plush. It had pictures of all of those early 20th century social reformers that Bowie and all those guys Chris was talking about, you know, there's this sort of burgundy carpet and, you know, nice wallpaper. So they do have an incredible amount of wealth. Chris is also right, though, about the diversity of the congregation. I mean, we we may have this sense that, that St. Paul's is some kind of old, crusty, white, Protestant people, but but it was also a very diverse. And I think I think the diversity of the congregation must have some connection to what the work that they're doing. Right. On the more pragmatic or more programmatic side, Chris mentioned that you need people who know what they're doing to uncover the past and then to present that past to the public. You know, Chris is a public historian. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to present the past both to his congregation and to the larger Richmond public. But you may be part of a church, like I asked him at the end, who wants to learn more about how you might get such a project started and how you might make this a public effort, not only in the church, but in the community, you know, as a sort of public history project in your church. This is a great place where our friend Bob Beatty from the Lindhurst Group can help. Um, you know, he's one of the sponsors of the show. Give him a call, email him, go to his website. He's doing the kind of work that intersects in many ways with the kinds of projects that St. Paul's Richmond or your local church may be interested in doing. You know, and I know he's been thinking a lot about how his uh, group may be involved in work with congregations. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Drew. I think that's a wrap. It's a wrap. Great conversation today. As you can tell, we're kind of fired up here with a lot of interesting things to think about. We hope you're thinking about those things too. And until next time, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitch, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Christopher Graham. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always. It's John Fiat.